This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. The Jason Kavnis Experience is sponsored by Kavnis HR. Kavnis HR delivers HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States with our platform that automates HR products and services while giving you access to a dedicated HR business partner for more complicated HR challenges. Small business loses an estimated $10,000 per employee per year because of unreliable HR. Small business owners are spending an average of 25% of the time on HR, time that would be better spent taking care of their people, their customers, and building their business. Cavernous HR saves small business owners time and money on, on their HR. Sign up at www.cavernousHR.com or email me at jasoncavernous at cavernousHR.com to learn more. Cavernous HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. Hello, and welcome to Jason Cavernous Experience. I'm your host, Jason Cavernous. Here at Cavernous HR, we launched a crowdfunding and refunder campaign. Go to refunder.com slash cavernousHR to learn more. Our guest today is Steve Buchanan. Steve, ready to be great today? Uh, yeah, I am ready to be great today. Yeah, so Steve, totally. first thing, so how old are your kids? Are they grown or are they still like kids, so to speak? Well, they'll always be kids to me, you know? Yeah. Uh, even though, yeah, they're older. They're they're 20 and 21. So talk to me about these uh, number one dad awards that used to give you. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I do put that on my resume because I, I am I've earned several Number one dad awards, sometimes there's a mug. Um, I have a, a small piece of tile that was made. And these are these are quite distinguished awards. Yeah, they mean something, get. Right. They do. Now, <laughs> now did you bribe for any, did you give our bribe for these awards? Like, no, like, no. I like, like, use some extra candy ice cream, uh, you know? <laughs> no, they give hugs, you know. They're, they're given with love, right? They're really wonderful. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And then talk about... Um, <clears throat> This, um, your spearfishing adventures. Oh, spearfishing. It is such a passion and hobby of mine. I, I love it. Um, so spearfishing, I do it, uh, breath hold spearfishing. So I'll, uh, so it's free diving and, uh, basically you have like a long spear gun, which is a rubber band loaded, uh, spear gun and you have long fins. You got the nice mask and the snorkel. Uh, it's tough to do around here because the water is dark. Yeah, I was terrifying. gonna ask you that. You know, like yeah. how can you do around here? Oh, uh, I've done it, but it's dark and it's terrifying. And the the, the season for spearfishing around here is only like a like a few months. <clears throat> so there are places like Hawaii and Florida is really where I, I love doing it. Uh, and it's so you know, it's like you can really unplug because there's no electronics that you have there and the the motion of the ocean is rocking you. Uh, and then you hear all the little click, 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 which is like, you know, crabs being crabs and fish being fish. Uh, and then you're, it's, it's hunting, right? So, but you're hunting something that's, you know, it's it's smarter than you and it's better than you down there right so the fish know you so you have to be very calm you have to slow your heart rate down because you're holding your breath so you hold your breath you dive down uh you have to clear your ears you got to focus on all these different internal body things uh 
And it's a terrifying place. Like I've run into sharks before and you have to intentionally keep your heart rate very, very low and focus on having a good shot. And then when you shoot it, you probably miss. Most of the time it's fishing, not hunt killing. Uh, and then when you do hit a fish, uh, you got to go grab it and bring it up to the surface. And then you have fresh fish to eat, which is fantastic too. So I know like you go hunting, like your elk, elk hunting is like the limit of the certain things you can do, you know, certain size elk, certain size deer, whatever. Yeah. Is there like limits like that with spearfish? Totally, totally. There's, you have to know the species of fish and you have to know the size that you can hit of that species of fish. So there's different techniques you can kind of do. You can kind of measure it or you judge your distance. Uh, and that, that those are great because having those limits means that you can keep hunting, right? You keep the right population alive. It's So it's, yeah, a lot of ecologically sound activities. I'm right? guessing there's some kind of community of spear fishermen out there for, for Spearfishing oh. person, people, if you want to call it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely communities of faceboard groups. I'm guessing it's pretty intense. Yeah, it's all the same type of people, I guess, right? We all, like, know how weird of a hobby it is and have the same sort of loved ones that think it's equally weird, <laughs> right? Uh, but it's a great way to get out, and it's good. It's really good exercise, too. How much does it cost to get in a bottle hobby? Like, I have to imagine that's kind of expensive, isn't it? Or am I wrong? When I started, I just had a snorkel. And some cheap fins from like Walmart. And then you can buy what's called a pole spear, which is like a, you know, six foot long spear. And it's got a rubber band on the end of it. You put your hand through the rubber band and you hit, you know, you try to hit the fish. Um, so you can start really inexpensively. Okay. Um, but then like with any other hobby, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> you can spend more money on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everything. Even like you start to. Like you start running as a hobby, you buy some cheap shoes before you know you got thousand dollar shoes totally. on it. Like yeah, yeah, totally. But so like a good spear fishing setup with a good wetsuit and everything probably is about a thousand bucks with the weights and the the dagger and all the rest. And so it's the same for assuming you're pretty good swimmer. I am actually a horrible swimmer. Yeah, I was so when I was back at West Point, we you get qualified as your your category of swimming. Uh, so you, you take a swim test and I was in rock swimming, which is, yeah, <laughs> I didn't join the Navy. So I was a really poor swimmer. Uh, this has made me a better swimmer, but you have fins on. So it's kind of a different game, yeah. right? Like I don't know how to move my arms around, <laughs> but I do know how to move my legs. So so talk about this. Uh, this I thought this was kind of funny that you take part in age appropriate league soccer. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I do. So so uh, I, I, you know, I played soccer my whole life. I guess I could have probably played in college, uh, uh, like at a D1 level. But instead, I decided to pursue, like, you know, went to West Point and did the Army thing instead. Uh, so now it's like, so my age appropriate soccer, I've played on leagues, but I don't want to get injured. And I don't really care about the sport, like scoring or trophies or any of that. I just want to go play good soccer. So I play every Sunday with a group of guys, uh, guys and girls. Some of, them, some of them I met through business school and we're all aging at the same <laughs> rate, right? Uh, so, you know, there's no slide tackling, there's no goalies, there's no going to ground, there's no injuries happening. And it's more just like fun. And we razz each other. It's a good time. Yeah, apparently, like, you play soccer. Unless you're the goalie, like, everyone's running around all the time, right? There's yeah. really no breaks. I mean, there's some breaks, of course, <laughs> once in a while, but, like, 
Yeah. It's not like football where you're like taking like breaks between plays and stuff and walking the huddle and soccer is like you're you're running at some kind of speed all the time. Yeah, you're you're really you're really doing the I mean, I guess as we're aging, we're doing more walking, but Messi walks a lot too. So that's just how it goes. You you have a more strategic perspective on the field, but you're never stopping, right? You're never yeah. taking a break. Do you have a favorite soccer player? Oh Messi. Messi. I mean, of course. Like who's not who doesn't love Messi? See my favorite I mean, I guess if it was my favorite local, it'd be uh, Jamo Jordan okay. Morris, right? Uh, and then historically, I'd say Dempsey was one okay. of my favorite players, and Pulisic okay. as a, as my American player. I gotta say, he's pretty he's pretty awesome. I actually we run the uh, the U.S. A friend of mine and I have the the Facebook page, the U.S. Pulisic Facebook fan page, and that's fun. So yeah, so I don't know the schedule, but I'm guessing so Messi was here from Miami. I'm guessing they're eventually come to Seattle play, right? Yeah, he won't be here because they're in different leagues, right? So oh, okay. there's the East Coast and the West Coast okay. leagues. The so they don't like would, do interleague play. Oh, I didn't know the, that. The only thing would be like in the finals, okay. right? Um, so it would be rare, mm-hmm. unless they kind of do some exhibition stuff. Okay, yeah. Cause I have a niece lives in the Dallas here. Her son's like real big soccer like ten, and so she was trying to like have him go see Messi. And the tickets were like, I'm making this up. Post record price fit it off. These tickets for his got like three thousand dollars. Astronomical, yeah. astronomical. They were like twenty bucks each in Miami prior to him arriving, and then they went up to like $500. Yeah, I mean, I understand why. He is, you know, a big deal, so to speak, you know? He's the GOAT, man. He's amazing to watch play. Yeah, it's like if if you could see uh, Pele play or something like that, right? Yeah, he's like in his 30s, I guess, like upper 30s or? Yeah, 36, 36, I think. 36, yeah. I think 36. Yeah, I just have to worry to get these players to the here before like their past their prime, you know, like, you know, could David Beckham came to like his late thirties. Right. I mean, I think Pele came to the late thirties. I right. might be mistaken. Somewhere to you know, like entice people to come like earlier, you know, but, yeah. but, but you want to pay the best rate and we're not the best soccer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You get, it's so like the premier league in, in yeah. uh, UK is where the highest price players yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, and we're not there. It'd be asking like, you know, like a, like uh, when Shaquille O'Neal came out of 90s, I asked him, hey, go play in Europe, you know, right. instead of NBA, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But I mean, the sport is changing, right? An unpopular popular opinion of mine for a while. I remember 20 years ago or so, 15 years ago, I said to my brother-in-law, I think the Super Bowl is, I think the American football is, is declining and I think it will decline. Um, and while it still kind of has a stranglehold on everything because of the way advertising is done, soccer is growing in America. And I, I mean, I guess altruistically, I think it's, soccer is a good thing for all kids to play, right? Regardless of your gender or your size, anybody can go out and play soccer and you don't have to buy a bunch of pads. You can just go out and be athletic and, and have a team experience. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, and I think that soccer in the U.S. is probably good for our population just as a just a health yeah, standard. Health around yeah. Stuff, yeah. Uh. So what's your opinion on this, right? Not counting this year because the U.S. women's team did not do expectations. Yeah, yeah, it did not. But traditionally, the men's team, for lack of a word, a better word, sucks, right? And the women like kind of always dominate. Right. Why do you think it is? Like, Why is this one sport where the women do so much better than the men? Well, you remember the movie The 300 where uh, Xerxes says something to the effect to Leonidas and the Spartans, we will subjugate your women. Mm -hmm. And Leonidas says back, you haven't met our women. (laughs) I I think American women are, you know, not that they're individually better, but they have like a, uh, there's, it's more ingrained in our culture for equality, Mm -hmm. I guess. Globally, you know, there's other countries that have more equality, but I mean, 
compared to a lot of countries, not so much. And and our women's uh, collegiate programs are unrivaled throughout the world. So our, our women are, are great. They didn't perform so great this year for a number of reasons, which everyone could debate. Um, so that that's that's an issue. Our men. Uh, it was a depress four years ago, no, five years ago, it was depressing. But I think we had a great showing at, at the World Cup uh, this this last autumn. You know, we, we made it pretty far. And the best thing about it is our men's team is one of the youngest men's team out there. Uh, so they'll hit their prime in four years when the World Cup is here. Nice. That is going to be amazing. Like save money right now to buy your tickets for it when they come because yeah. it's going to be it's going to be it's gonna like it's like it's going to be Seattle, Dallas, I think New York City, yeah. Mexico City, Canada. So there's a lot of places to go see. Yeah, it. we can go from right up here, right up to Vancouver. Yeah. 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 I know those tickets be hard to get or crazy to get who knows how they yeah. like who knows the system they're going to use to get those out there you know yeah there'll be some sort of lottery involved mm -hmm. for like dedicated folks but one of the awesome things is like so since seattle is like a host city i surmise that there'll be four teams here during the during the the the, the, the initial bracket right so that four teams will live in the Seattle area oh, that'd be nice. for a few weeks, yeah. right? So I figured there'll be in the community and stuff, you know, exactly, place, you know? right? So then so you like bar hop and restaurant hopping every day trying to get some random pictures, right? Yeah. You can see them all, and their families come and their supporters yeah. come. So they'll like the one of the teams will probably set up camp in Tacoma, mm -hmm. right? So there'll be a team of internationals. Almost, almost like a mini Olympic village. So right. Speak, yeah. yeah. These little Olympic villages set all over the place. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about seeing how that works out in the community. Yeah. I don't, I don't, it has to be some way where like, you know, like I'm not a big soccer fan. Right. You know, I, I like it's I watch, okay. watch the it's game. Okay. I watch the game for a while. So like, okay. you'll get there. Like it'd be kind of unfair. Like there's a lot. Of, I, I don't win the lottery. You don't. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, I know there's no way to do it where you feel like questionnaire. Are you a soccer fan? Of course, everyone's going to say right. yes. You know, I'm over. Right. You know, so like it's like that unfair. Right. You know, there's methodologies for it. Like yeah. it, it, I think there's the. There's the American Outlaws, which are uh, the supporter team supporters mm -hmm. for the so like uh, behind the uh, on one of the ends of a of a soccer game. That's where all the dedicated supporters sit, and they wave flags and they sing all the songs. That's where all the chants are. So uh, in Seattle, it's the Emerald City Supporters, um, Emerald City Soccer Club, and then uh, the American Outlaws. They travel around to all the games, okay. so they'll have a number of seats if, if you're an american outlaw yeah. and you join the thing and all the rest of the stuff it for for qatar there was a um uh there was a lottery system that you could join and they would allocate a certain number per country uh -huh. i suppose um so they'll probably have something similar to that yeah uh with like but there's like passport requirements so you got to buy it and it's non-transferable yeah. yeah which will which will be interesting as that clashes with american capitalism yeah, I know. And then what, what's a what does an American here do? Like he just climb mountains, just looks or at mountains and says those things are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I started rock climbing when I was in high school, and that became the passion of like the obsession. That that's what kept me from playing soccer in college was mountaineering. So then at West Point, I was on the mountaineering team, and. Uh, so mountaineering is the the full spectrum of everything in the mountains, right? So whether that be, um, you know, sport repelling or rock climbing, but typically a mountaineer is someone that will climb above to the point where you need to have gear, like a rope, right? So like if you're on Mount Rainier, you just any any guest can climb up the first couple hundred feet, and then beyond that, 
there's there's like the the national park rangers kind of discourage certain people from going further uh as getting up onto the the muir snowfield and then beyond the muir snowfield that's where you start to get into real danger um so as you go higher in any mountain that's where mountaineering typically starts right you have to have you have to be roped you have to kind of know what you're doing you have to not be a threat to yourself and others so i love mountaineering done rainier a bunch of times with uh, friends of mine family members it's great you have like a dream mountain you want to climb? You know, wouldn't it be cool to climb like the seven summits? Uh, but that's really expensive. That's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of expense. And, and I guess my mountaineering has waned uh, as like my spearfishing has kind of eclipsed it and my running, right? Like I've, I qualified for the Boston Marathon, so that was a bit of an obsession. Um I'll get back into the mountains. Aren't going anywhere. No. I'll get back into well, it. Well, hopefully they're not. They, if they go somewhere, we're in a hole to hurt. There's a big problem. problem. Yeah, I'll have like, yeah, I'll, I, you know, I try to get out once a year or so. I took uh, my kids up uh, a couple years ago, up Rainier. Um, but it's you know, it's, there's a balance between family and work and how much time you have available. I can go running in the morning. Going mountaineering, that's like. Yeah, yeah, I guess the time can be, you got to yeah. drive somewhere and... Yeah, it's a commitment, right? You got to have all the gear ready and food and all the rest of this stuff. So you would consider yourself like an avid outdoorsman? I guess the word outdoorsman has different definitions across the U.S., mm -hmm. right? An outdoorsman in the in the Southeast would probably be like a hunter. Yeah. Um, I love the outdoors. Um, I was an infantry officer. That's kind of like, you, you got to love going out <laughs> yeah. in the woods, right? Uh, that did kind of sour it a bit for me, right? Because you're like, I've been sleeping on the ground all week. I don't want to sleep on the ground. Um, but yeah, I love the outdoors. Uh, and that's one of the best things about the Pacific Northwest is just the access. And like, how long have you have this passion for the outdoors? Since you're a kid, are you uh, hit a certain age? Yeah, or? when I was a kid, I used to spend more time out in the woods than inside just just messing so like around. a lifelong obsession so yeah i guess so like I, I guess i'm more comfortable out there but it's hard to get wi-fi signal out there now right so <laughs> i gotta you gotta focus on what's right for your body and your age and all the rest of the family requirements so let's talk some of your army training first i want to talk about the um jump master Okay. What is a jump master? People don't know what it is. Uh, so jump master, if you ever seen any uh, army movies where there's people jumping out of the airplane, the jump master is the person that oversees all of that. So a jump master, there's several positions that there are. There's the person that's, you know, calling and controlling and controlling the door. There's also people on the ground. A jump master is just like um, basically the one that runs the show of an airborne operation. And this is like, this don't pick anybody. You got to really know your stuff. Yeah. You like be detail-oriented. Like they're picking like basically like criminal crop, right? Well, I mean, you got to be airborne qualified and you have to learn all of the nomenclature and all of the rest of the things. Now, uh, and then you go through a three-week school at Fort Benning, Georgia. No, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And they qualify you to be a jump master. So you need a bunch of jump masters. Yeah. So for every maybe 30 jumpers, you need a jump master. Um, so, but it's kind of just part for the course, right? If you've been doing it a while and if you've been in the army a while and you've been doing it, it's, it's not, I mean, it's just not a, it's not available to everybody in the army because you don't need everybybody to no, jump out of airplanes, no. right? I mean, why pay the money for everyone to be jump master or airborne? Right. Every unit's not airborne, right? Yeah. So it's just like, a, it's like a job requirement more and than you anything ever, else. You still go skydiving? Like, is anything no, like that? No, no, that's the kind of. You're like, that outdoorsman, that outdoor park can stay yeah, alone. That, that's expensive. <laughs> I kind of, I think it'd be wonderful to go do that. Mm -hmm. Like I have friends that do that, but it's like a big 
money commitment yeah. and yeah. and the time commitment too. You got to drive somewhere. And yeah, yeah, all of that. Kind of a little unrealistic, but it would be awesome, right? But that's so. Is any like outdoors hobbies that you want to do we haven't done yet? I would love to go. Uh, what's the one? Kiteboarding. You know, where you got the big kite and you're and okay. you got a surfboard and you're going. That seems, and then they jump like 50 feet in the air. That seems amazing, because uh, then you have to learn about the wind. Uh, you got you have you're really in touch with the, the, both the wind and the water. Uh, yeah, that that would be exciting, but also expensive. <laughs> yeah. So you also finished ranger school. Mm-hmm. So from your point of view, like I know ranger school, they'll say like ranger school is a leadership school. Is it really a leadership school? Or is it just a bunch? Is it really just like you know, embrace the suck and survive this well, pain and torture, so to speak? There are leaders that haven't gone to ranger school, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's not like an exclusivity thing. Um, yeah, it it is a leadership school for the military, right? To do to do combat operations, it helps you lead in those scenarios because you practice those scenarios. It's not like they go over, you know, like a PhD in leadership. It's not like those lessons are taught in there. It's more like a, like a, like a test what you know, right? And figure out how to say the words, commands, and orders in the right tone of voice and presentation to inspire people to lead, when, or, or inspire people to action when. Um, <laughs> they don't want it when they don't want to because they're starving and they're tired and it's, you know you're miserable. So how do you motivate during miserable times? Good. I mean, does that does that translate over into leadership in the civilian world? I, I've never really had environments where people are <laughs> that hungry <laughs> or tired or angry, except maybe climbing. Yeah, unless you do an expedition to like the North Pole or something, or right. some random, yeah. or maybe you could go on the first ship to Mars or something. Right. But even then, like you're communicating a different style. Yeah. Like you. Would not be like, listen, Ranger, you need to go get that. That's not going to be effective. No, no. Somebody been slept for four days and they're starving. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you got to, yeah. <laughs> they're not on that. So, talk about being an Excel guru. Like, one thing, like, people oh, realize, yeah. like, Excel, PowerPoint, none of us use it as good as it can be, right? Yeah. And so, how did you, you just t- taught yourself? You took lessons or you're just like, hey, self-taught, I need- taught, self-taught. Right? Self-taught, um, autodidact in terms of Excel. Um, so you, I did majored in mathematics, and uh, I didn't, I didn't like I when I solve a problem, I want it to stay solved, right? So I wouldn't necessarily do it by hand. I would write a code or a program to solve it, and it was more fun for me to do it that way to figure out how to do it on Excel or maybe MathCat or some other program where I. I could create a solution that would stay forever. Um, and then as I go along in life, <laughs> I'm just nerdy about it, right? Uh, I, I always see an opportunity to make an Excel document. This, this could be made out of a spreadsheet and my whole life's on a spreadsheet. So I, yeah, I, I, I overly use Excel uh, at, to augment my interaction with the world. <laughs> and, and I guess, uh, yeah, I'm an index match guy. If you know, <laughs> then you know, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I've used it to in businesses. I've used it, uh, and it was really at the the foundation of uh, TDY Rentals, right? There's the complexity of figuring out how much a TDY reimbursement is is massively complex, right? So you have. T 
TDY locations across the United States and every city gets its own TDY reimbursement amount and those amounts change seasonally, right? In DC, there's four different rates. Tampa, there's two rates. Um, so those rates change seasonally. And then you also have a, a variable number of days per month, right? So, uh, so that adds to the complexity of letting someone understand how much money they actually do receive while they're on TDY. And then from that, you have to subtract how much are they going to pay for utilities, rent, move-in expenses, um, and all of those other things you have to subtract from that, basically. And then you have to wrap this up into a monthly bill, so a monthly amount. Um, and then it even gets more complex because under certain programs, there's like the Department of State has what's called a sliding scale. So for the first 60 days, they get 100% of their entitlement and then it drops down to 50% and then down to 25%. That's insane. So in that's 60 days, it's not two months. So during those 60 days, it might go over three months, which have different amount of days and the seasonal change, right? So creating this calculator and being able to, to turn something turn this weird set of factors that, that create the optimal reimbursement and delivering that to the client. That's that's kind of a, like a core of our IP almost. And that that's one of the real value adds that we give us at TDY Rentals is helping people understand how much money they could make and how to use it. So uh, we'll talk about interns later on, but I don't know if you like, like you ever find yourself in a situation where like, you know, you actually introduce on Excel, they say, I don't know how to do it. And you're like, are you kidding me? Like, how you know how to do this? You got, and then you got to remember, no, I'm the Excel uh, guru. They probably don't know. No, I, I just always know that I'm better at Excel <laughs> than everybody I ever could. No, I, I did meet. So I was I was a business manager for a company called New Engine in uh, Seattle. Um, and I was using Excel to uh, model a lot within that company. And I met one woman on the train on the way back home and she was as equally good at Excel as I would, right? So she could talk the talk and we were like, oh, so the two of you nerd, I'm guessing the two of you nerded out. Yeah, we did, right? But most of the time, you know, you, you figure out, well, I have a problem, how do I solve it? And then there's people out there making YouTube videos. They're gurus, gurus, right? Yeah, YouTube University, yeah. best thing ever. They're so good at it, right? So talk about this a startup you had um, called Choose Vets. Talk about, tell us story about that. So choose vets. So when I was in law school, I started a moving company called Veterans Moving Company. Uh, and it was uh, basically we were lumpers. We would load and unload trucks. Um, you know, people in the military know how to do that. We do it all the time. We're strong. So I started that moving company. And uh, it was I hired Michael. Uh, and then hired Ronald. I did moves with Michael. Michael did moves with Ronald. And then I developed an Excel program to do the invoicing and scheduling and all of that. Um, and that moving company grew. Uh, and then I, I built a, um, uh, a cleaning company because I realized it was the same, same core functionality of like from the business functionality of how do you acquire customers? How do you acquire the labor? And uh, so, so I grew that and I, I didn't really make any money on it, but I was employing people and I was learning about the business systems. Um, and then while I was in business school, I learned about scalable tech companies. I never didn't really know about that. Uh, and then it's kind of an aha moment like, 
So a moving company and a cleaning company and a yard working company and all of these other things where you employ labor to do a job for a customer, like an individual customer and individual labor are all the exact same business model. So you could just automate all of it. So uh, got together and we, we made a, a company called Choose Vets, which was essentially kind of like what TaskRabbit is now, which wasn't really in the same format back then. So it would be you'd go online and you'd see all of the available laborers, but all of them were military veterans. You could see their five star reviews, their hourly rate. You could pick based on skill set and then you you book one of those. Um, uh, great, great concept, uh, kind of a triple bottom line thing. Right. The customers loved it. The 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 workers loved it. And, and there was real kind of uh, it was good in a lot of ways in that. Um, it helped integrate military veterans with society a little better. And because the, the, the clients hired the, the folks because they were military veterans, right? And this was in like 2010. So the, the wars are really still going on. Uh, and you had problems integrating into society. So that, that well, you know, at least with the guys that, that worked on the platform um, as laborers, they, they – they got that sort of reward. And then from the client standpoint, concept is like nobody brags about hiring somebody to mow their lawn, but everybody brags about the military veteran that they employed. So there were real and they would you know, my guys would get like dinner and stuff like that with uh, with the people that hired them because there was a real there was a, a feeling of camaraderie. Also, uh, from the standpoint of the laborer, um, when you join a company. Uh, often you don't see the end results of whatever Excel document you're working on or PowerPoint you're working, whatever, you don't see it. But but with a finite job, you can see the the true end result of it. You say those were boxes here, now they're boxes over there. It's a good thing. So you have an internal reward and it's exercise. So there's therapy on that side. But Choose Vets, eventually um, with a platform like that, you have to raise a lot of money. Um, because the margins are very thin and it's C to C, which is also complex. Uh, and about the time we started raising money, we got a lot of uh, press, uh, good press. And as we were mobilizing, that's when Home Advisor and Porch <laughs> they raised like a crap ton of money, right? And we just frankly couldn't raise any money to compete with that. Also, Amazon started Amazon Home Services, which is now defunct. And that kind of pushed us out. Is that the one where they like were deliver open your door and deliver a, a package inside your house when you weren't there? Yeah, I don't. I don't really. I think they were doing the same thing that Home Advisor and and Porch were doing, really. But you know, once Amazon steps in the game and says they want to do it, you're like, well, I guess I'm not doing it because there's Amazon's doing it. So, so why do you why why do you think so many military veterans have trouble transitioning even to this day with all these? Nonprofits out there, all this focus on it. Why do you think this is still a challenge for a lot of veterans? Well, it's definitely the civilian's fault. No, it's <laughs> well, it's just a different language, right? <clears throat> and there's presumptions about a military service member. Um, some are true, but you know, the, for a while there was a real fear about PTSD, and they would, you know, they were going to go crazy and kill yeah, it. Well, we're not going to hire a P anybody veteran because they all have PTSD. They all, all going to blow everything up. Right? Yeah. No, what was really going to happen if they have PTSD is they're just going to be quiet for a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they're not going to be okay, or they'll be sad on Veterans Day. Um, but so there's there's that, and then there's it gets politicized so quickly 
that like if there's a certain ethos or culture in a company, they might not want to integrate someone that they don't feel would fit that ethos or culture. Um, so this problem and also a problem is that uh, in the military, you know, we don't we don't brag about our accomplishments. We, we anybody that brags didn't do it right. You're, you're not you're not awesome if you're bragging about it. But as you're you know, if an employer doesn't speak that they want to know, you know, especially in an interview, tell me how great you are. And, and you can't say, oh, my team did everything. Yeah. Let me go hire your team. That's you, exactly right. Well, I'm going to hire you team. Let me go get, get somebody who worked for That's you. That's exactly right. Yeah. A, a good leader, at least in the military, accredits their team for all the successes. And all of the failures are the failure of the leader. That's just how leadership goes there. And that's not how employers, or at least the HR world, thinks. I agree with you. I, I think one challenge, too, and I know people disagree with this. I think a lot of veterans, they're so used to being like spoon-fed, right? Do this this time. And of course, you move, but moves are done. For, everything's kind of done for you, right? And it's a very where no one's spoon feeding you, right? You got you got to do stuff on your own, right? No one's gonna tell you to wake up. No one's telling you what to eat. And I think a lot of veterans have a challenge with that, right? There's a structure problem, right? If you get so, you know, it's just so used to one standard of structure, you know, whether it be showing up at a certain time or here's the standards that you must play by, right? And then you go into a structureless world that that's probably, you know, it's not necessarily the best fit. Now, everybody, not everybody requires that structure in their life. That's just something that you're used to. Uh, and another thing is the norms in the military are written on the wall. You know, this, oh, this is what I got to do for success. I'll do all those things. Whereas in a civilian world, a lot of companies, the culture is just not published. It's yeah. not written anywhere. Yeah. They don't write it down. If they just if, it, it down. if it's written, no one's following it. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're like, well, what am I supposed to do here? Tell me tell me how you want yeah. me to do, and yeah. then I'll do. In the military, yeah. you want to get promoted to E5? Do these steps. Right. E6, do these steps. What kind of officer? This is how you apply to OCS, you know? Yeah. Everything's black or white, you know? Right. I mean, of course, there's subjective stuff, of course, you know, like everything else, but like, <clears> for like, you know, most everything you know, you know, we gotta do succeed, right? Or fail. On the wall. or fail, or fail. <laughs> yeah. maybe. The rules are pretty clear. Yeah, yeah, and that's not always true, depending on the culture that you're in anywhere else. And that's hard because that culture is tr is taught at at the very entry level jobs. Mm but you're, you're getting a person that has leadership experience and all of these other great get thing done experience and they missed that cultural training of what's the culture of an accountant? What's the culture of like a finance person yeah. or, or whatever that might be. So that that learning that culture, that, that's that's tough. It's rough. Yeah, it's, when I got out in 2015, maybe civilians don't know anything about it. Like a lot of civilians, they don't know different to what general or private does. It's the same thing, you know. Yeah, I could like, agree. Kills me too. Like you know, I know at least when I was coming <laughs> to the army, every E four had to do some kind of training. Like if, even E four, probably got it from a group of people and yeah. gave a class, and right. Public speaking, and lots of you know how to do that, right? Just things like little things like that, you know. I don't think civilians get what we do in the military, right? Yeah, there's a lot of executive level things that are pushed way, way down mm -hmm. in the military, mm -hmm. whether it could be public speaking or teaching or. Or being in charge of five people. You don't yeah. get that very often in the civilian world until you're just because of the hierarchical structure of yeah. a lot of like, if you're a lawyer in charge of five lawyers, you've been lawyering for <laughs> a long time, right? Yeah, I come sure like we graduated West Point and graduated, like, you know, entry basic course. You put in charge of a platoon with millions of dollars of equipment, probably 20 years old. 
So I bet the twenty year old somewhere else, like probably trying to get coffee for someone, you totally. know. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I had forty but yeah, that, forty infantry dudes. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you get no credit for it if you get out right. in six years. Because what know? job requires you to be in charge of forty people, right? At at the entry level. That's that's they, yeah. there's leadership skills that are taught and way young. Way yeah, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I, I that's hard to even think of what the civilian and that's probably a lot of senior leaders have a hard time when they get out because they're used to being in charge of people, you know, and like they get out. Oh, here you're in charge of one person, you know, like yeah, you're, a, you're totally missing all of my skill set. Right? Yeah. Yeah. OK, I can make a PowerPoint or Excel document, but uh, <laughs> my real skill set would be to make sure everybody else gets their things done yeah. and inspire them to do it. Also, so so like leadership is such a huge deal in the military, like and I feel like sometimes in the civilian world, it's given lip service, mm-hmm. right? We received classes on leadership. All the time. This is the theory. This is the execution. Now go do it. You have manuals on it, how to do it, right. how not to do this, it. You yeah. know. Written by PhDs. We make a study of it because we want to empower subordinates to take action. Study past battles, see how they make decisions, yeah. you know. All of it. All of leadership theory you get in the military. And then I sometimes in the civilian world. You're just the person that did the best job. Yeah. And yeah. suddenly. And that's what it's called. The Peter principle takes over. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then they just. Just because you're in charge of someone doesn't mean you know and a drop about leadership. Yeah. And that's one thing that's good about military, too. I think that's my opinion. Like there be times I've been like units. And a question I will say the the. E8 supposed to be in charge, right? But reality is the E4 in charge because right, yeah. the E4 is a natural leader, knows what to do, and everyone gravitates to him. Emotional like, leader as yeah. well, yeah. There's the different leadership roles mm-hmm. plays within like group dynamics. Yeah, that's fascinating to see, right? Yeah, another concept of the military <laughs> people get wrong. Like I think a lot of people think of the military this day is like a Gomo Paul Army. You know, E7 tells you what to do, you do it right. It's not like that. Right? It's it, not it, like that at like, all. Every leader I knew who did that, they failed. Yeah, horribly. It right, does not work. Every like leader that. I knew who like was successful, they asked input, collaborative. Of course, it's a decision, but at least. You know, you got the input right. Yeah, that what, what I've I was taught by General Vines back in the day. He said, <clears throat> "Phase A, Phase Alpha, and Phase Bravo of leadership. During Phase Alpha, I need your feedback. I tell me if the Emperor has no clothes. Tell me, I'm like, give me all the ideas. Tell it, and then there's a lot of back and forth where you collectively decide what the best." plan of action is and then phase bravo is okay we're doing this yeah right we're, we're doing this i gave work. you 10 chance of feedback in phase yeah, a i don't it. i don't hear phase it now a, yeah and then phase execute. B, execute and then of course there's phase c which is oh that didn't work <laughs> quickly <laughs> let's change quickly quickly that's funny yeah so um you are a personal guest of the 2015 state of the union state of the union yeah like you're talking about yeah. the state of the union with the president against yeah, the state of the union president. that's pretty yeah, cool that's how'd, that, how'd that work that was pretty cool so uh congressman kilmer was fan- is a fantastic host and uh, uh, when we were in the beginning stages of Choose Vets, we uh, you know you're trying to figure out how do we what do we do with this thing? How do we get notoriety? So we we did we pitched him. We pitched him just because that's what you do. You let your local uh, politicians know what's happening in their backyard. So we pitched him. We told him what it was. And we didn't have any ask, right? He asked us, like, what do you want us to do in Congress? We're like, I don't know, nothing, man. Just here's what we are. You know, I guess as an entrepreneur, uh, it's not our job to change the rules. It's just our job to know what the rules are and figure out how to optimize 
the, the, the laws that are set by the nation, right? So we can see what the laws are. Okay, cool. We'll play within those laws and figure out how to make money out of it. That's I think that's what the, like kind of an entrepreneur does. Um, so he asked and we said, nothing. Thanks for your time. And then he asked, <clears throat> he asked me to go to the State of the Union. Like, a, we were like, what? That was, that was crazy. You're like, okay, sure. Um, and we're a guest. Uh, so I was a guest there. Um, it was fun to see the pageantry of everything that goes along. So you treat like a VIP, like you get special stuff, you get special hotel rooms, or like you treat like a no, like no. a special person, so to speak, or no, none just, of that. I'm just okay, a plus one for the okay. congressperson, right? So you know, we go through like the, the the tunnel, and you go through the different areas, and you sit and and you watch, which is cool. <clears throat> um, yeah, there's, I mean, I, I did get to meet other Congress people, which is fascinating uh, to see them like Congress people in the raw hanging out with other Congress people in the raw. In the natural habitat, right? so to speak. <laughs> yeah, right. Because, you know. Someone should do that. You know how they do like these uh, where people like to have these guest speakers and like they narrate the like, nature or so what. Yeah. Someone's like do like a Snoop, Snoop right. Dogg. Snoop Dogg narrated the one that weasel got seen with no yeah, snakes. The weasels. Yeah. yeah they should like awesome. Snoop Dogg narrating the session of Congress. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Who are they like on the David, next habitat? Like David Attenborough. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting because like <clears throat> when privates are hanging around with other privates, they talk one set. But it's the same regardless of your rank. When general officers get to finally hang out with other general officers and they have and no nobody's listening or watching, they talk the same way as anybody else yeah. normally does. And that and that's that's similar with Congress people when they're 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 humans and you, you get to see them and then there is a hierarchy, which I didn't really understand before. Like the Speaker of the House definitely gets a bigger office, has a bigger control and influence. So that was kind of cool to see. Um, <clears throat> there was some press, like we did some, uh, did some podcasts, did, uh, it was on national news, uh, asking about answering a question about veterans issues. Um, did it help the company? Yeah. I mean, it did because the, you, you have to have a PR campaign when you're at a certain level. I think that was that PR campaign might've been too early yeah, for that company. Of, yeah. A lot of stars <clears throat> make the mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was kind of an error, I suppose. Uh, we probably should have done a lot of a better go-to-market strategy. Probably should have done a better, um, you know, operation strategy and, and drive figure out our client interaction at a local level first. But those are lessons learned, right? That's kind of how you move forward. So you became a, you went to law school like later on in life, right? Yeah. Why why decided to go to law school later? Glutton for punishment, right? Um, at least you're honest. Yeah. So, um, well, this my my divorce was quite contentious, and my post dissolution uh, was very contentious, and you have to hire attorneys to do that. Um, and I frankly wasn't making very much money. I wasn't making enough money to to do that. Um, and I, I realized I had just a my view of the world was incongruent with the world that I was then facing. Right. So in the military. If you say something, other members of the military take it as truth, right? If you don't call someone a liar, that's like fighting words, like yeah. slapping someone. You got to have hell of a proof, like, you gotta, <clears throat> right. over, overwhelming proof. Yeah. Like the, beyond reasonable doubt. Right. You know? The assumption is that what you're saying is the truth. Uh, and that's that was true to my West Point core. That was true to everything I had. But in the civilian, like in the court system, the presumption is that you're lying without having evidence of it. So that was 
that was a big learning lesson for me. I was like, well, of course I said it. Why is it not true? So I realized I, I kind of didn't necessarily understand the rules of the game. I understood the military rules of the game, and, but I did not understand the civilian rules of the game. Uh, and it helped me re-look life and reassess how the, the divorce machinations were kind of operating uh and and it worked out quite quite well right i i then you know eventually we came to an amicable solution and i you know i think we it all worked out great in the end and i learned a lot along the way <clears throat> what kind of law did you did you focus on uh so um i i what did i focus on first i i really focused on family law because that's why i was there right everyone else was there to go become a lawyer i never wanted to be a lawyer my entire life like never like uh, that was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, so I was there and in every every class. I was like asking the teachers, how does that, how, like I would learn contract law. And I'd be like, oh, I'm gonna go back and analyze my own divorce contract. Oh, I'd learn about all oh, this. So family law was really my focus, not to become a family lawyer, but um, for survival of sorts. Um, and then, uh, and then I, 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 what did I get to, I got to focus a little bit more on entrepreneurship once I was kind of out of the, the, the woods in the, the family law and um, also on negotiating, uh, negotiations, right? Like I, I didn't understand anything about, like when people would haggle over the price of an item, I wouldn't know, I was, I was like a terrified of that, right? And I knew that there was some algorithm, some heuristic, but so there, must be, there must be actually i did i did do it like i, I did a, a like one of the one of my thesis i guess kind of a thesis um was on um game theory and negotiation and i did write an excel spread excel spreadsheet to say when is the lie when does the liar work right At, under what circumstances and you just you know, there's the permutations on steps in a negotiation and at what point do you lie or would someone lie? And what are the outcomes of that given, you know, if it, is it a one-time negotiation, it is a longevity negotiation, all of those things to find out when would someone be likely to lie? When would the outcomes of that happen? So I, I just geeked out on that to a level that I don't think they were really expecting. <laughs> I don't think they'd ever had an Excel spreadsheet on a, on a law paper. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, negotiation was fun. Uh, but then I did get to do a lot of entrepreneurial stuff. I did take entrepreneurial law. I took, uh, some, I took more business-related law from the, and, and employment law uh, from the perspective of that's the world I want to be in. So you applied for law school, you haven't been out of school for a while. So was it especially in military or do you got anything else that, I mean, I'm guessing, did they even look at your, like your West Point, yeah. Point, everything like that? When I applied uh, law to law school, I think they really looked at like your, your grades and your LSAT. I think the LSAT was like the biggest thing. I don't know how it is now. It was eons ago, a decade ago. Um, so your LSAT score was huge and your undergrad GPA combined with where you got that degree from and then life experience after that, right? Um, so. Now, well, where do you go to law school at? Uh, University of Washington, okay. right here in Seattle. Okay, nice. Yeah. And then after you finished that, did you, that's when you started became family law, you worked for someone else first. Okay, so when I was in law school, I did law school during the day and I did MBA program at UWT during the night. 
and I had. So you are a glutton for punishment. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's 24 hours in a day, man. <laughs> exactly. We got lots of hours. Um, so the business school was like, I, like something I wanted to do, right? It's not like I had to, I, I got to, to do that. And then I was also running uh, um, a veterans moving company and then eventually choose vets. So I was, and I was in the army reserves commanding a, a company down in uh, Las Vegas and having a divorce and being a single parent, all of the rest of the things. Um, so I slept occasionally. Uh, and then... Uh, Buchanan family law really was like, so when did I, 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 I did that when I got out of, it was only a few years ago, honestly, it was like a couple years ago when I left active duty. Um, so I left active duty in 2007, did the reserves, deployed, went to law school, did the business things. And then I got mobilized to Tampa. Uh, and then after Tampa, I was I was on active duty for so essentially I was on active duty for three years, and then three years ago when I left that or two years ago I started Buchanan Family Law. So that was I knew family law, I knew how to run a business. I'd I'd been the chief operating officer of a law firm in the past, so I knew how to grow firms. I didn't necessarily know how to practice law so much. I didn't really want to know how, so I was very focused on the systems and the process uh, and automating, right? How do I automate? Now this is before AI, but how do I automate in order to drive more value to a customer and then keep lawyers doing lawyer things and paralegals doing paralegal things? So the integration of those two things, because a lot of law firms are just uh, like antiquated, you know, just all, all companies get antiquated after a purpose. So Buchanan Family Law was my experimentation into how do I, how would I grow a firm? Right. So, how did Choose Vets? Well, how do you experience a Choose Vets in your Buchanan Family Law help you with the company you're running now? Oh, so lots of lessons learned, right? <laughs> Painful, expensive lessons learned. So, Choose Vets, I learned a lot uh, more about having <clears throat> good, solid founding team and a fo- and a founding team agreement. That was pretty critical. Um, I learned. Just the jargon and nomenclature that you have to ingest when you're in the startup world. Uh, you learn all of that stuff. Um, so that was important. Uh, in Buchanan Family Law, um, how did that inform what I'm doing now? Well, I was only doing it for a little bit of time. Um, but I did learn, learn more about the power of automation and the power of... Um, having a good uh, funnel or cycle for customers to make sure that the customer, uh, to, to drive the right value to the customers at all level of the cycle, right? So that uh, you can view it from the customer's perspective, which I'd say a lot of lawyers do. They, you know, they view it from the legal perspective, but you have to look at how does the customer interact with the service that they're being provided. So I would say that, that was probably a lesson learned there. And are you still involved with uh, something called Tacoma Pro Bono Community Lawyer? Right. So Tacoma Pro Bono is fantastic. So while I was in, while I was doing Buchanan Family Law, I would uh, donate time there because people need that. And as a lawyer, you need pro bono hours, but you know you always give more hours than than uh, than you need. <clears throat> but you have a lot of really interesting cases. You find people that are like. They, they need a lawyer, right? They need someone to kind of point them in the right direction, even if it's just an hour, right? You sit down with someone for like, if 
under that umbrella, a lawyer can sit down with a client that needs legal help, like a family law lawyer, and a 20 minutes can drastically change how they interact with the world or how they interact in that or their perspective, right? Because you you have one concept of what the law is, but a lawyer can be like, no, no, it's not like that. Think it's this way. The speed limit's 20 miles per hour, not 25 or whatever it is. Uh, so that was very gratifying. And then um, <clears throat> over the last year, um, I've been doing pro bono hours through the University of Washington Tacoma, sponsored by Tacoma Pro Bono. So I go into the Veterans Incubator down there, Vibe, uh, and I'll do, you know, I'll educate the the, uh, the the students, whether they be veterans or not, uh, on. I'll help. I'll kind of rip apart their business proposal or their business plan uh, from both a legal and business perspective. So um, that that counts as pro bono, right? Those students need that sort of guidance and I needed the experience and it turned out to be a really great experience with Vibe as they're now hosting us. So the University of Washington Tacoma hosts uh, TDY Rentals in the Vibe incubator over the summer um, because we're hiring five of their students. We've hired five of their students as paid interns over the summer. So it's really a great um, you know, symbiotic relationship there. So you're not a practical lawyer right now, correct? Uh, I can say I'm a lawyer because I'm licensed, but okay. I don't practice. But do you have to like, uh, so is it like, you have to like do education once a year to keep your law, like yeah. be like some continuous yeah. education, like what has to happen for them to say you're no longer a lawyer? Or are you always a lawyer regardless? Well, you, you, you have to get disbarred to not be a lawyer and you get disbarred by malpractice. If you're not up on your dues and your legal education requirements, I don't know. That doesn't necessarily disbar you. That means that your license is in jeopardy or so. I don't know. That's one of the things that we never like don't get to that point. So I never want to know. Um, but yeah, I do have I do have education requirements and I have pro bono requirements and then fees and stuff like that. But I'll, I'll I'm about to now that TDY Rentals is going so well, uh, I'll slip into a um, an inactive role. So as an inactive role, you have far less requirements, basically. You're still a lawyer. You just. And can't can you practice. practice law anywhere in the United States? You have to have a a, a bar exam from that no, certain state. No, you you get you get you take the bar exam, and there's a multi-state bar exam, so that your bar score can be accepted by other jurisdictions. But you get sworn in by a by the state. So I'm licensed to practice in Washington State. Now, corporate attorneys can practice wherever the corporation is, but they can't stand in front of the bar. You know, like the that's so like in the front of a, a of a of a courtroom. In front of the chairs, there's like a little bar, right? And then on the other side, that's where the lawyers are. So you can't go in front of the bar unless you're licensed in that jurisdiction. So let's suppose like you're, you're, a, family, you're, you're a family lawyer, right? Family law lawyer. Can you then go like and be like defend someone in a criminal case? Yeah, you can do it. I okay. mean, you just, I just wouldn't recommend you're it. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, there's, I, there's different philosophies about it, right? Um, but when I go to the doctor... If I have a problem with my toe or if I have a problem with my skin because I'm a redhead, right? I need to see a dermatologist. The doctor can help with some basic things, but but it's, you know, there's generalists and then you probably need a specialist on certain things. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so I know I'll make this up. I, it's like a lot of lawyers that go to law school and they become lawyers are like, oh, shit. 
this is not what I expected, right? Yeah. This, this sucks, right? Is that still the case for a lot of people? Or? I don't know. I can't speak for a lot of them, but alcoholism is rampant. So maybe that's a, that's a you know, maybe that's an indicator. Um, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, there's the people that were in law school that like their parents are lawyers or they worked in a firm or they have an idea, a clue about it. And there's people who just like saw it on TV or just had their resume or something. They saw like Matlock and want to be like Matlock. Right. Or yeah, see, I, like, I got one of those suits. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't really necessarily speak for it. I I know that some people find it truly fulfilling and it fits their personality and lifestyle and others do something else. Here's one for you. What's a concept of the American legal system that people just don't understand? You know, like, you know, a lot of people think, you no know, justice and all the truth comes out, you know. But isn't it more like, isn't it more like, I don't think people are like how advers- adversarial is it, right? It's like who has the best game plan, so to speak, right? Versus justice and right and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's a bunch of concepts you learn in law school that are, or, or, you know, you learn through being at law school, which are kind of fascinating, right? So um, justice sometimes tips in favor of the the underdog, right? So, you know, you have the, the there's a judge and there's juries and they'll, you know, they, they're not dumb. They know that if it's a, a little guy suing the insurance company, that the insurance company has the money to put forward all of these attorneys. So that that's I kind of like that part of the legal system there. Um, so what a, what a, you said, ask, what do people not know about it? Um, so <clears throat> our form of government is super expensive form of government. Right. And it's so as a strategic planner in the military, you, you try to think about, well, what forms of government suit the con- a, an individual country best? And our form of government is too expensive, frankly. Uh, you, you, you know, uh, the society has to collectively apportion a large amount of money towards the legal system where we figure out if the law is right for the citizens. And it's an adversarial system and it's very, very expensive. Just think of the debate over any social issue. It's debated in public, but it's debated by lawyers. It's debated by politicians. That's all super expensive. Other countries, they really can't afford to be debating like that. So you have these powerhouse countries where the law is debated and where you kind of figure out what's the best set of laws to meet the society and the people in it. and that that's a perspective that I kind of kind of got while I was there, understanding that the adversarial expensive system that we have is in the pursuit of figuring out what is the right law to meet the people there, but also that not every country can afford that. So the petri dishes of every state will determining whether they want abortion or not. Right. That's let's. They're going to try it in this state and try something else in that state. That's all to get to what's the right interaction between law and people. Okay. And when you passed the bar exam, were you still active duty or, or your reserves? And- oh, no, I was in the reserves. Reserves? Yeah, I was in the reserves. And so I'm guessing when you, got, when you passed the bar exam, the military is, oh, you're a lawyer now. Let's make you a JAG officer. Do they? <laughs> no. No, not at all. I'm not a JAG officer. <laughs> of course I'm, not. I'm not a JAG. No, no. Uh, uh, no. They, they, it's on my resume. Yeah. Um, I could – no, but – JAG is just like any other branch you have to apply to yeah. join that. And I did not want yeah, to yeah. do that. But you think like that's one knock on the military, that, how they do like talent management, so to speak. You know, with this guy, this passive bar exam, yeah. it costs a lot of many people, lawyers, that's yeah. do the switch right. But yeah, yeah Army doesn't think that way. But I don't want to. I yeah. would say no. 
right? <clears throat> There's still people in there. They're like, hey, why don't you come be a Jag? And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, thank you. Um, it did allow me to, be, so I'm a psychological operations officer. So in the active duty, I was infantry, then I was trained as a psychological operations. But it does allow me to be a civil affairs officer, kind of, mm-hmm. because I have a legal expertise. So civil affairs integrates with the, the government in foreign countries or wherever. Um, and they'll they'll embed with different parts of the government so I can embed with the lawyer or the okay. judge or the judicial system or the political system given that I have this legal. Now, mandate. are you still the commander of the unit down in Mountain View, California? No, I had my change of command was a couple weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So as a commander, he's a battalion commander, correct? Correct. Is it like, is it still like, you know, two weeks a year, weekends, or is like that's more no, food? It's more full no. time, right? Yeah, it's it's, so, it's more like right. Is it, yeah, is it me as an active duty, or is like kind of a mix? no? Because active duty, you're living it every day of your life, but you still you have a command responsibility. You, you take have care command, of. You always have you to have do, your you, phone. You, you right? can't have that two days. Yes, yeah, somebody calls you, you have to answer it. Your boss calls you, or somebody gets in trouble. You got to take the call at three a.m. and you're not necessarily getting paid for that. That's now, a, are you getting paid like based on two days a week, or are you getting paid like a different amount of money no. because of your time command? You're still getting paid two two days a month. Okay, and so this like other army here. duties, like you got to go. Yeah, you got extra stuff. Yeah, yeah. okay. Man, that's a hard. That's and they wonder why they're having trouble filling their ranks. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, so how do most people do with their like? No, they're they're let's say basically you worked at Amazon for speak, right? Mm-hmm. How do people you do? Okay, I have this full time job as a you know act, you know reserve commander in my interview. Also have a full time job as we say a we say a, um, some kind of director at Amazon, right? How do people balance that? Right? It has to be hard they, to they do. They don't. They don't. It's really really impossible. It's something that the the reserves I imagine struggles with. So like I, to stay in the reserves, I knew that there's a lot of jobs I just could not do. Right. If I wanted to be a partner at a law firm, can't do that and be in the Army Reserves. There's no way that the civilian organizations, though, they may support the reserves, not to that level. No, they might say they do. Yeah, but, yeah. but they're not going to be like, oh, you're going to Korea for two months. You know, we got this right. big uh, yeah, takeover. We, you know, we're about to launch yeah. this initiative where we're going to, you know, do yeah, AI something. Can't, something. can't do it. Yeah. So that that's a hardship. So I and, really, and do you think that like challenges how the reserves keep talent right? You think that, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, that's definitely a problem, right? That's a, it's a, you have to make work life balance, but you have to make work work life yeah. balance. I mean, like, I mean, we're using Amazon because we're in Seattle, you know, you know, work at Amazon, make a lot of money, stocks, or you know, work for reserves, and like, don't get you know, underappreciated, so yeah, to speak, underappreciated, you know? overworked, and and I mean, to an extent, you want that, you want someone that's like dedicated to mm-hmm. it, but also you're losing a lot of talent because they're. It's an abusive work relationship sometimes, right? And it's just the nature of the system. It's so you said earlier you used to be assigned to Las Vegas. Now Martin, you like how does that work? It's always like reserves. You just like basically, I guess I'm thinking of a national guard. Where like you like right. you're in some kind of unit in Tacoma, and that's your you live yeah. for whole life. Yeah. So how's it like you move around? Is that a, a, everyone does this or? Yeah, yeah. So the the guard is local. It's state, right? So you're assigned in that state. The reserves is a national asset. So. Um, so, for example, psychological operations has to be a national asset because, you know, states would never be allowed to use that asset for themselves. States can use they can call up their own National Guard to, you know, for states of emergency, but they would never really be able to pull up like 
Like there was, they'd never be able to use PSYOP. It's not, not, not legal. So just like the same thing kind of like with the Navy, right? So the Navy, should Iowa have a Navy National Guard? No, it's, it's a national asset. For, so in the reserve, so in guard, in the guard, you stay in your state. So you commute to your guard post. But in the reserves, you move around the nation to wherever, whatever fits your career field. And you're reimbursed for travel, which is nice. I know when I have to do like, you know, people get selected for battalion command, brigade command, based on promotion list, OMLs, all these different things, uh, command select list. The same, same thing reserves? Same thing. Okay, same so thing. it's not like, you know, you went to a job board, the battalion command from a my review and put my resume in, it's like, no. it's OML, okay, yeah, same, same way. Yeah, there's an OML, there's a board, they select you. It's the same, same process. Okay, um, so what's your job now in the reserves? Uh, I'm awaiting assignment right okay. now. So I would like to join the Army Innovation Command. Um, it's part of the 75th Innovation Command, which is part of Army Futures Command. Basically a whole bunch of innovators, right? So, um, but I'm post-command, so the job opportunities are limited. Uh, yeah. That's where I'd like to go. They're located in Austin, but there's a unit in San Jose and a unit in Seattle. And so that would be very convenient. I, but that process takes a while. Have you said, I don't know what it's called, but I think it's something where like commanders need command and they realize they're not in charge no more and like no one's counting them no more. It's that like kind of like this post command, not depressed, but close command, like um, something is called where you're like, oh man, I'm not commander no more. Like, oh, I imagine that hits you on, a, on active duty yeah. a lot more, right? Yeah. You know, there's General Schwarzkopf tells the story of like, when he's no law, when he left the military, he gets to make the executive decision of getting leaded or unleaded gas, <laughs> right? And he needs to pump it himself and all of that. It's not so much in the reserves, right? Because uh -huh. I have the civilian job is so much more of my life. I would say once you leave command, it's more of like a relief, right? Because you, I don't have to field phone calls at 3 a.m. anymore. You know, that's one thing people don't realize about the military. Like I was, I was come commander of Chesapeake. And like you get these crazy calls. Like one time I had a call, like because one of my soldiers' dependent son got pulled over by the polo's eye, right? You know, that does happen in the Korean War, right? No, it does not. You're you in know, charge of everything. Yeah, like if someone gets a DUI, you're working at Amazon. No one's gonna call the VP of yeah. Amazon, Microsoft. Hey, right. this you know <laughs> this uh, random software developer got a DUI or fight a bar. Yeah. It doesn't happen, right? It's not in the military. Like you get calls, like it's like it's insane, right? Like, yeah, totally. It's and of course, care. what's the insane? Like your boss calls you. What did you do to prevent this? Let me see the, let me see the proof of the yeah. safety briefing. You know? How did I prevent my soldier's son from getting a speeding ticket? I yeah. don't, know. I don't know. Poor, I'm undisciplined, sir. That's that's yeah. my problem. My that, yeah, that's one thing I don't miss about the military. Yeah, that's yeah. right there. That's true. So, what's your plan for your career in the, in the military? Uh, I'll go as long as they'll keep me. Okay. Right. So there's. You're having fun doing all that kind of stuff. I enjoy and, it. Yeah. Right. I. I. It was stamped on my heart at a young age. Right. I. I love service to country. Uh. So. You know. I guess would they say you know. Well, obviously, if there was something big in my family that took priority, I would I would do mm. that first. And that's why I left left active duty. I left yeah. active duty for my family. So and how many years did you do on active duty? Uh. Eight years? Eight years, okay. Yeah, eight years. And so, like, if you keep doing the reserves at your, at your current um, rate, when could you retire from the military? I, I could retire right now. But could you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I've done, you know, 24 years, 24 okay. years. So okay. I could retire, but you don't collect your retirement until you're 59 and a half. Oh, that I did not know. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of a bummer, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then, of course, if you, like, knock on wood, pass before then, like, is your... No, no. 
I don't think so. I, you it know does. what? I have no. The government just keeps your money. I'm not married, so I never really paid attention to that. I don't okay. know if dependent spouses receive. Or maybe your kids get it. Maybe. Maybe I don't know. They should look into that. Yeah, I should probably figure that out, yeah. or just not die. Yeah, that's, be, my, that's be, my plan. That's, that's, yeah, best plan. Yeah. Stay alive. <laughs> die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So of course you know you serve a country, you know, because you know patriotism, all this kind of stuff. But what's your personal goal? Like you want to be like you know, the head of SOPs and the Civil Reserves, make one star food bird, or you just want to. I don't know. Keep doing it and just have fun. Like I, most people I don't do. know. I imagine I'll probably top out at Colonel. Yeah. I imagine that's probably it. Um, like if, so my civilian pursuits are demanding, right? So I have to make that balance. Like what would it be in life? Like if I get a series A round or series B round, I mean, can I really afford the time? Yeah. That'd go? be, yeah. If you got an A round, that'd be like, you know, one of those uh, decision points you have to make. I think, right. Yeah, you know, like, right? man, I just raised basically like raised like a 10, 15, $20 million a round, like something real significant. You have traction like you have yeah. increasing like, man, like I love doing this job. However, comma, like I got to take care of these other people work for me, you know? Right. Yeah. It's a bigger demand. So I, We'll see what happens, right? So, I'd love to stay in the military forever, and but you know, I, I'd also love to get a Series B round. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm guessing we are right now in your life, like Series B versus one star. You picking Series B every day? Yeah, you know how much? <laughs> not even close. Like, what would? How much money would I need? <laughs> not to even have close to not be a general officer or something like that. Yeah, because as a general officer, that's like your life, man. That's, yeah. I mean, they have great jobs, mm -hmm. but they're kind of side gigs, yeah. right? Yeah. So next, let's talk about your interns, right? So um, you have like, I think, five or six interns. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From the University of Washington, Tacoma. Yeah. Like, let's talk about interns, like, you know, like the whole camera, like, you know, paid versus unpaid, like how you mm -hmm. recruited them, like all that kind of stuff, right? Oh, yeah, interns, right? Um, uh, I So... I, when I when I hired these interns, I remember I kept having a reoccurring nightmare that I was out with my soldiers back in the day and we had to dig foxholes and none of them brought their shovel, right? And I was just terrified of that. And I, and I was like, oh, I think it's probably because I think I hired these interns and maybe none of them are gonna do any work. Um, so the process was, uh, it's partnership with the University of Washington Tacoma. So, um, uh, Professor Purdy had these had has these seminars, uh, and at one of the seminars it was talking about the integration between public and private sector. So I had already known uh, uh, Thomas Coljam at the Vibe, and we talked a bunch, and we just kind of came up with this idea. We're like, "Hey, you're gonna you have this office space. It's gonna be empty over the summer. I need a lot. I got a lot of work that needs to get done. What if we figure something out?" And then. Um, then I took an entrepreneurial risk, right? I had to say, do I have this much money? Do I have this much time to spend and uh, spend on this experiment with these interns, right? So I, I, ha I have a, you know, we already have a, a, a team, uh, a, a senior team, and then we're gonna immediately get interns and there's no intermediary, right? So generally interns are- CEO and intern, yeah. Yeah, right? Generally interns are at the bottom going, getting coffee for someone who's frankly barely employed at the company mm -hmm. because they're learning the culture. So we don't have that hierarchical system. It's so we, we uh, UW Tacoma was very, very helpful in helping us get, a, get the word out and getting a bunch of very quality applicants uh, and then we assessed them all and we were fortunate enough to get really five amazing interns, right? Uh, and then it took about, 
So we all sit in a, a room or in, not in an, uh, we sit in a big open area and we have like about maybe this much space and I'm like right there with them. Um, and we work and work four days a week. Uh, they're paid. Uh, some of them are also getting internship credit from the university, which is good because kind of then you have a professor helping out your company figure something out, right? Which is great. Um, yeah, they're, they're performing. They brought their shovels. They're digging, right? They're really good. And how do you figure out how much to pay them? Minimum wage. wage okay. Just, you know, minimum wage in Tacoma is fifteen seventy five an hour, okay. and that's what I could afford to pay, right? Okay. A lot of interns are unpaid. I didn't want to do that. I didn't feel that that was ethically right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's how much I pay. Like, how did you figure out what to give them to do? So you got this huge to-do list of yourself, Right. And then you write it down on all these different areas and you're like, oh, man, I'm never going to get to that one. I'm never going to get to that one. So I kind of was able to get our company to do list together and figure out which of those lists required the most immediate labor support. Uh, and then I pick we, we pick based on that. Right. We have a marketing person, uh, a coder, a UX and operations and accounting. So. We knew in those areas we had a lot of to do. Uh, so we first spent the first week just educating them on the company. And there's a lot of education that they need to learn about, like the life cycle of a startup, what we're going to do, how quickly we need to change and interact. Uh, and then we just make a giant to-do list and then allocate. And how long does this internship last? Just for the summertime? Are you going to keep them on like, until, until your money runs out? Like, what's your plan with that? <laughs> so, A, we're profitable, so money yeah. doesn't run out. Okay. Um, but we're... Uh, Right. The current plan is they go, they all go back to school and September 26th or something mm-hmm. like that. So that's when that internship cohort ends. We're probably UW Tacoma is we're working a partnership now where we can continue having more office space, especially because we have like a photo studio, like a green screen. Um, but we also have. Where they'll keep feeding us interns, and I'll just keep using the interns, right? So, so is the plan like that? Rotate interns every three months, or or like these five? Like, we're so happy with them. You want to tell us, hey, I want to keep these five on as interns. Gosh, you know, they've all been trained and know the whole thing and they're really humming along, right? Yeah. They know how to do it. So like the best thing to do is just keep them on if you can. It depends, right? Because each of them has their individual goals. Yeah, they, right? and they yeah. have their own like college. I mean, yeah. someone's taking like 24 hours of college, they probably won't be able to have time to do right. internship. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think of it in terms of like, you know, mission first people always, mm-hmm. I think of taking care of each one of them and their individual goals mm-hmm. best, right? If someone needs to pursue this, then yeah, hey, we're, we're here, but go get your work done, man. And maybe it'll be like part-time for some or full-time for others or whatever. So uh, we're talking about your company a little bit, but I saw a thing on, a, on your program, on your website says like something called a new parent program. Yeah. What yeah. is what is that about? That's very wild, right? So. The new parent program is the Department of State. So in the Department of State, there are overseas pregnancies, whether it be the employee or the eligible family member is what they call it. And it's in the government's best interest to have those that pregnant employee or spouse uh, have their child within the United States. It's best for the best for the mom, best for the kid, best for citizenship requirements, best for everything. So and in a lot of places where the Department of State people are employed is quite austere. So we have a program where they'll bring them back to to the United States uh, for 90 days. So while they're there, they get TDY because it's a it's 
It's a business expense, right? So don't make them like go back to live with their parents or anything like that. No, They're, no, they get to pick anywhere they want to go in the United States. And they'll say anywhere in the United States they pick. Anywhere they want to go, which I'll get to in a sec, right? right? So anywhere they want to go in the United States. So they'll pick, generally they kind of pick where they have family around, right? Especially if it's like the first one. Um, so they go back and, and that the mother gets TDY and the dependents get TDY as well. And when the baby arrives, the baby gets TDY. Uh, at, they're at like portional rates. So it, in the manual, it shows that a mother would get uh, about $45,000 worth of TDY to go to DC for 90 days, which is a lot of money to find lodging in, in you know, for three months. And nobody rents baby furniture. So we'll rent whatever they need. So sometimes you have someone find an unfurnished place and we'll furnish the whole thing. Or they'll, uh, we're, we're good at cribs. We're good at all of the, the, like a, the Dyson vacuum cleaner, the, the baby gates. We're good at renting all that stuff because nobody else rents it. And frankly, why, why, you wouldn't want a used bassinet anyway. So that's gross. So we, uh, yeah, we rent to them and then, you know, they can pick anywhere they want. So say say a pregnant mother had a couple kids and she happened to choose Vail, Colorado during the high period, she would get like $120,000 for three months of, of temporary lodging. Yeah, nice. Destination pregnancy. So, you, I mean, your company's doing very well, right? Compared to other one, right? I think one status, eight months, you achieved like over $500,000 revenue. Like how have you been so successful selling your product to the market? Right. So that's including receivables. That's so we don't we don't have that like money in the bank. But um, so how have it been? So I took a lot of time figuring out what my next entrepreneurial pursuit would be. I spent a lot of time assessing what because I I didn't want to have to raise money. Uh, I didn't and I I didn't want to have to build a SaaS product. I didn't want to have to have something that took so long to create something on a guess. So a lot of it was assessing. So um, how have we been um, profitable is that um, we have a lot of access, frankly, we speak the language. So we have a lot of Department of Defense folks and we speak the language and more importantly, I understand the rules. I, I make sure like, I spend so much time diving into the law to make sure that our clients don't get in trouble and we don't get in trouble, that we stay well within the boundaries of the law. And then, uh, is this available in every state? Correct, every state in the United States, yeah. Is anyone else doing this, or something comparable to this? No, not really, okay. not really. So our our competitors really are uh, corporate housing. Okay. Corporate housing, that's, that's their really other option. So if you're going someplace on short-term TDY, you know, your business sends you someplace, uh, Kentucky, you're gonna stay in a hotel over weekend. If you're staying there for a week, you might stay in an Airbnb, staying there longer, you're probably gonna stay at uh, either a furnished corporate housing or you're gonna stay in an unfurnished place and rent furniture. So that choice is, is right in there. So our competitors are the furnished housing, corporate housing, which is junk, or it is uh, furniture rental. So we are a furniture rental company, but really our space is the corporate housing. So in the furniture rental industry itself, Competitors are um, Aaron's and Rent-A-Center that both have like an annual revenue of two billion globally, but they're not really our direct competitors. They're more of like a um, payday loan sort of thing, okay. right? 
So they they rent furniture. They do rent to own. It's kind of predatory, I yeah. guess, in a way. Is, yeah. Um, and then, but court furniture is a, a direct competitor in terms of providing furniture to unfurnished housing. So someone uses your services, they get the, the, the whole apartment furnished. They the TRI for six months. TRI ends. What happens to that furniture? Right. So we so in the very beginning we say there's this much is the allocation that we will spend to purchase brand new furniture for you that you then rent from us. So in the very beginning, there's there's depending on where their TDY location is and you know how many days in the month and seasonality and how many dependents they have, we'll determine the amount and then we'll pick with them what do they want. And that gives them the ultimate variety, right? I have special operators in Tampa that want to have a gym rather than a living room. We'll rent you a gym. We'll go find you a gym. I've, I've, uh, I have a guy that wanted really specific artwork from UK. Okay, we'll get it. We'll track it through customs. It shows up there. I have a guy that wanted a Japanese futon from Japan. Fine, we'll, we'll go buy it, rent it for you, completely customizable. At the end of the rental, so that means that we don't have a warehouse. We have no logistics on the front because it's all delivered there and we help them assemble it. And then on the end, we don't want to have a warehouse at the other end. It's, it's too expensive to move around furniture. That's more expensive than the cost of the furniture. So we simply liquidate the stuff for a quarter of the retail price. So anything that they selected to rent, we just liquidate it on the open market. There's no, it's not rent to own or option to buy. We liquidate it. Lots of times our customers buy the stuff that their employer rented for them. Totally legal, they can buy it. Some of them pick what they're gonna rent knowing that on the other end, they're gonna buy that, which is a great all around and it meets the tax regulations. And you have any partners with like any furniture companies like with Ashley's Furniture or right. E.T. Hortons or? Yeah, we're, we're getting those, we're getting, and that just uh, alleviates like the logistics tail, right? So um, we can serve anywhere where there's furniture, right? Somebody says, you rent in Syracuse, New York? Yes, we do. Uh, we rent any, we'll rent to anywhere because we don't have a logistics tail. Um, but getting partnerships with Ashley Furniture, that, that's our first one, right? Uh, having a good, solid working relationship means that we get the best stuff on time, exactly when we need it and, and where we need it. Um, is, would it ever be possible to, to run out of new furniture? I mean, they make furniture, new furniture all the time, right? So that's impossible, I'm guessing. Yeah, you just pick something else, right? Okay. You know, yeah. So off the subject, um, I just have another question about fit and spirit fish room. Yeah, okay. What's the craziest like thing you've seen down there? Oh, uh, I had a, a shark in Hawaii. You know, like, you know, like when there's the videos of the people in the shark cage, mm -hmm. it was that, but without a cage. Because I was, I was with some really experienced local spear fishermen, and we have this like, what you do is you make like a chum ball and you throw the chum and then it all settles down in like a cloud and you dive down and you sink with the cloud. And I swear the shark was like from me to the camera, just tromping away <laughs> at the chum and just like, well, I'm not accomplishing anything here. <laughs> Even if there is a fish, he's going to get it first. <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. All right. Back, back to the, your company. Right, right. Okay. Back to your company. Um, how does your, your point of view, how does your company succeed? What makes you successful? Ah, huh. um, well, it's a great opportunity, really. What makes it makes us successful? I guess the 
default answer would be the team, right? The, I I don't get anything done. They get it all done. They they uh, there's no way that I could sell as well as our salespeople can. I just can't communicate to a customer in their language on their level or whatever. Meet the customer where they're at. I can't do it as well as they do. I would talk about law. I would get lost. Um, and the like Brittany, who does operations, who does most of our customer interface and helping them source the furniture, I can't do that either, right? I, I'm, I just don't have the skill set to do it. It's not where my skill sets arrive. So the success of our company is really based on, on the people and their ability, their belief in the vision, uh, their recognition of the opportunity, and they're willing to just, they're all a bit entrepreneurial themselves, right? Everybody's taking the persistent entrepreneurial risk. So follow up question, from your point of view, how is your company gonna fail? What, what happens where your company fails? You know, when you said those mountains, they stop existing, that would definitely be a failure. <laughs> no, we'd find a way, we'd find a way. I'd get furniture out there because it'd be emergency relief mm -hmm. and we'd, we'd help them do it. Um, so a fear is that some big company with a room full of MBAs looks at this and says, oh man, how have we been missing this opportunity for so long? We, 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 had, the, we had the economics all incorrect and they throw $5 million, like, like Amazon with Amazon Home Services. If a big dog stepped in, um, that, that's a risk, right? Is that some, but I, I think we've graduated beyond the point where that's a, a, a risk um, to us. To like the big company, they put the MBAs in there and they just say, why not just buy TDY Rentals? They've already figured it out. They speak the language. They've got the whole thing. Just buy us. So I, that that's a risk and a fear that we're, that's, that's, a, uh, that's what we're afraid of, right? Now you haven't done any fundraising, right? No. Do you plan on doing any fundraising? Are you going to try to keep the way? Because I know you don't, I think you have like a big line of credit, don't you? Right, line of credit. So I had a, a, a an advisor, uh, a friend of mine, uh, when I needed to purchase like $130,000 worth of furniture, I did not have enough room on my Amex to do that. Uh, so he stepped up. Uh, so that was kind of, that's like a really real investor of sorts, but we've paid all that back. Um, so it was like a, it's like a friend debt, I guess it would be, would it, could it be considered a friends and family around? Uh, ish, right? Now, do we want to raise money? Well, we're profitable. So we're, we have, we don't have like a runway. Why would we need to raise money? Not opposed to it. Um, um, I think when we have a solid go-to-market strategy and when we're ready to take... So the markets that we're going after are, are, are enormous, right? I think that the U.S. government spends about $1.5 billion annually renting furniture, whether it be directly through a furniture retailer like myself or through a corporate housing, the portion of it, right? So that's a giant market. Um, and then the corporate housing industry is like like 130 billion globally. So there's giant markets out there. So the reason to raise money would be to to get there faster, to get there faster than that room of MBA full of MBAs uh, would do. So how do you, how do you take care of yourself? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I don't know. I run. I, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon again. Um, so I, I run three times a week. I used to work out. I got a gym at the house, <laughs> but I, I've really, I guess, fallen off that the last month or two. Um, my diet's pretty good, I suppose, comparatively could be always could be better. Um, 
but I work pretty much nonstop, right? Like, uh, um, but your brain is going to take breaks whether or not you want it. Yeah. It's going to just do it. It's going to shut down. Yeah. Right. So like you can only run so far so fast, Mm -hmm. right? Before you have to take a break. So, uh, even though I've conditioned my, my body and brain to be able to perform more, you find yourself taking breaks and I, and I, I don't feel guilty about that anymore. When I take like a five minute break to just mess around on Facebook or whatever, I'm like, okay, uh, that's me taking care of me. I'm okay. I get, and then I get back in the game. So with your military responsibilities, TWA rentals, all the outdoor stuff you do, you know, family stuff, friends, social, all this kind of stuff. Like, how do you like organize stuff day to day? Like, how do you, pro- like, for example, uh, like, post tomorrow you have a, you have 30 things you want to do. Obviously, you want to do things one, two, three versus number 29 and 30, right? Yeah. How do you make sure you do that? I, I, can I show you? Yeah. All right. So I've been developing this to-do list. Wait, our cameras yeah. are on, right? Yeah. So yeah. this colorized, antiquated, analog to-do list, I've been keeping one of these for 20 or so years, right? And I, I redo it every couple days and I write down, this helps me, it's like an external hard drive, right? All of the additional tasks that you're like, oh, I gotta, I gotta remember to go to the post office for blah, 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 blah. That's, it's all in here and there's tasks, honestly, uh, Jason, there, there were tasks on it that have been on there for like <laughs> 10 years or so. And you're like, well, I'll get around to it when I get around to it. But uh, this helps me organize and then from this, Every day I'll write my list of things that are bugging me the most. All right, this is bugging me, this is bugging me, this is bugging me. And then I write, and then I kind of pick the ones, I draw a little square around the ones that I'm gonna get done today. And, I, and that's how I live on that list. And I know that list there that frees my brain to do all the rest of the stuff. Do you have any other tools you use? Like, like some people use Asana, some people use like Slack, whatever. I've tried, like- man, but it's not really working too well. Yeah. They're just, there's too much use, like, can someone automate my list? Um, but, and then, and we tried doing it with like, all right, we're gonna use a tool so we can all coordinate across the team. But then they're always selling all these bells and whistles. Like I don't really need a Gantt chart. So for the yeah. team, we have a Google Sheet mm-hmm. and we all have shared access to the Google Sheet. And I assign who the tasks are and who, to, who's the owner of the task, who's the supporter of the task, an explanation of the task. And then I prioritize it for each member of the team. And then uh, here's a secret. Um, in in our company culture, we have cereal, like our favorite breakfast cereal. Uh, and I don't know how this came to be, but like W, Steve Watkins, who's a co-founder of mine, he loves life cereal and I love Lucky Charms, right? So we incentivized each other by being like, no, you can't have the life cereal, not yet. <laughs> but you close that deal, you get it. Or you did. So we so then that, that kind of became like a joke between uh-huh. Steve and I. And then it is permeated throughout the company. So now the interns will have what's called a cereal task. Like you get this done, you get your cereal. <laughs> and the cereal is just sitting there waiting for them so they can look at it. Oh, get That's that cereal. Funny. Yeah. And then and then what happens is when you have that cereal, it's like the first thing in your morning. And it's your reward cereal, right? Like I every morning I have half an avocado and a bowl of Cheerios. Right. That's my standard healthy thing. Except when I earned that lucky charms, <laughs> then I have that unhealthy lucky charms bowl. And I'm like, oh, it's my reward. And they started off the day with it. So interns, have you have you delegated in them to do Excel spreadsheets for you yet? No. 
<laughs> I, no, knew, I knew that was going to be no, the answer. No, no. So uh, what we have done is that uh, Excel spreadsheet that is the, the, the basis of the contracting, mm-hmm. we have automated that now. That's okay. that's So we have a dev guy, and he's been working on that since the beginning. So, you know, two months of taking that Excel math and turning it into an online product. So... Uh, that that'll so that'll really be one of the first tools that we launch is and the thought is everybody in the government goes on TDY and everybody is unsure of how much money they're going to get. So we will have that tool available for everyone, given all of the different things where they have dependents, because I, I see customers and I was like. And when I asked them, like, hey, how did you figure it out? Some of them have an Excel spreadsheet that's been passed around in the industry. Others, like, hold up a piece of paper where they kind of scratched it out. So making this tool is a tool that will give away. Everybody in the government, hey, you're going on TDY. Tell me your location, how long you're going. This is the type of entitlements you you are available to get so that you know so that the writing's on the wall. Now, obviously, when they're there, we will tell them about our product yeah, yeah. and how to best use their entitlement. Mm-hmm. And how many co-founders do you have? So there's, uh, so I'm the founder, and then there are three co-founders. So can you talk about how, like, you know, a lot of companies fail because co-founder relationships go to shit, right? Right. Can you talk about how you're managing that and how that y'all came together and all that kind of stuff? I would say that that is a lesson learned from Choose Vets, certainly. Um, so Steve Watkins and I, uh, he's head of sales. He's, we've been best friends since West Point, like best friends, right? Um, and so that's a tight relationship. And then remember when I said I started that moving company, when I started the moving company and I did that coding thing and I was dealing with all the answer, the the calls and scheduling the people and the movers and everything, I couldn't do that. So I hired uh, through a friend of mine, uh, Brittany and Brittany now. And then Brittany was there through the growth of Choose Vets. So she has always done some sort of customer relations logistics there. And then she's now, uh, she runs operations for the company now. So we're, we're very tight. Um, and then Paul, who was the CTO, he was a CTO at Choose Vets. Okay. So we like core team is super, super important to us. And now we're in the, we're looking for a marketing person to join our core team. Uh, so finding the, it's been, a, it's been a challenge because we have to like, all of us are military veterans. How many marketing people do you really know that are military veterans? So we didn't, we don't have anybody in our immediate sphere that we've worked together with, um, but we're close. We're close to finding somebody there. But yeah, having that core team and being able to, it's not as like, you, you always know that somebody else is going to get the work done right. Um, but being able to relax and just know, sale comes in, I, everybody knows Steve's going to handle it. A, a client gets sold uh, and one is ready for the product. We all know Brittany's going to solve that solution and get it done. And there's just inherent trust in her ability to do it. And all y'all here in the Seattle area? Or? Uh, yeah, actually, no. Um, CTO Paul, he's in Bellevue. Uh, Brittany Operations, she is in LA, although she has an affinity for this area. We, was originally from here, uh, Chehalis. Uh, Steve Watkins is in uh, South Carolina. Okay. Yeah. And then our, our one of, we have a saleswoman in uh, Jamie and she's in Bangkok. Cool. So next I'm going to play this demo. If I can oh, find right. It. Demo uh, video. I think what's the wrong one. Um, hold on. Let me find it. Is there any one? Is there any more one? Can I go grab yeah, one? Yeah. Do you want one? Uh, I'm good. 
Some of you want me to play the volume and the, the volume play. I'll just talk through it. Okay. I know that guy that's up there. It's okay. me. All right. Uh, okay. So br briefly, I guess. Um, so this is a demo video that's more than just a demo. It's also kind of an explainer, right? You could show what a, most. Okay. Can we pause it? I mean, yeah. can we control yeah. the yeah. speed on it? Um, we'll, we have time and we'll just kind of yeah. talk through what okay. it is, right? So most demo videos are inherently obvious what the thing does and why you need to do it. Uh, and a lot of what we do is not obvious. So <clears throat> explaining a calculator to show what someone's entitlement is, people are like, oh, we all know how much you get. No, you don't. It's, it's, it's super complex. So I explain uh, what we're building, why we're building it, and where we're currently at. Uh, and where our future is. So I, let's let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens in the next video, in the next step. Um, I think the first thing I talk about is, okay, so pause that for a sec. So this is what we're gonna build. We're gonna build something that shows people how much their entitlement is. And that's an example of your DC, in DC, you can see that there's a fluctuation in the amount of money that they get every month. Now, generally, when you rent somewhere, it's a static rate, right? And then, so that leaves a unused entitlement. So our first thing is figuring out what that unused entitlement is. All right, let's keep playing. Um, and then, um, okay, go back a step. Uh, yeah, okay, and then, yeah, right, pause right there for a sec. So. All of our customers need help figuring out where to live. And there's a lot of tools that exist that kind of need to be aggregated, right? So we found it very helpful to use overlays like in the military. So say you're going out of Tampa, you want to know your go, no-go terrain, yeah. right? So, and then also, because you, you don't know that, right? Yeah, sometimes like knowing where not to live is way more important than where to live. Right, right. So we'll make these, we already do make these, but it's like handmade, right? Um, and, but it'll be integrated into a system using, like you can, there's data out there that you could just, you can tell by police reports where no-go terrain is. You can tell, you can tell by property values. You can tell all this stuff in a realtor's head that you're not gonna find on realtor.com or whatever. Bring that out into a visual depiction. Also include drive times. Because everybody wants to know how far is it? Is it within my five minute, 10 minute stuff? So we'll put points of interest on there, drive times, all of that aggregated so that the customer knows um, kind of where they should live. And then what we are is we're going to disrupt the entire corporate travel industry. And by do, what we do is we allow, so currently when you do corporate travel, it is um, you say you're going with Facebook down to, you know, uh, Mountain View for seven months. They say, here's your houses. Good luck. That's where you're staying. And the, they have a very similar uh, reimbursement heuristic because uh, it's based on IRS regulations. So then there's a, and then, but there's this whole chain of middlemen in there, right? There's the contractor officer who gives it to the contractor, gives it to somebody else. But in this, you have ultimate variety. So we'll show where all of the un, uh, un, uh, unfurnished houses are, and suddenly any unfurnished house becomes corporate housing. So we'll show all of that, and then you pick the layouts, 
And then the layout, there's a finite number of apartment layouts, frankly, and you put a 3D depiction of it. And then the customer will be able to, right there on the website, pick which furniture they want to have in their location. Also, there's a, there will be an interface for the employer to say, I would like my employees to live in this area. They can go pick where they're going to they Here's how much money they get. Here's where they're going to go. Go for it. And it cuts out. All, and it really, it adds more value to the employee because the employee gets to have this freedom of choice can be a completely tailorable experience so we find that they are better employees because they're happier at home they actually want to go on one of these work trips because suddenly they get they get so much more out of it yes we keep playing on here um And it cranks out the receipt in a manner that would would suit whatever the employer is. So that's that's what we're building. So if we keep going, um, we can step. Five. I think I just explained that. Okay. Yeah. So, yep, yeah, that's all. And then I guess we go to yeah. Go back to that one. Go to here, there right there. Are. Yeah. Go. Let's see what happens there. So this is the dream of corporate housing. <laughs> I made the same hand motion. The dream of corporate housing is this is what you promised. You sold some big, amazing place in the sky with beautiful furniture, wonderfully decorated, and you'll P see penthouse that. view. Yeah, you'll see that on, on the brochure on their websites. But in reality, it's not. It's junk. This is actual stuff that we we took pictures of someone's corporate housing, old TVs. I like that frying. I like the frying pan. Oh my gosh! Yeah, clean it at is. least, right? And you don't get everything you need. It's a bunch of junk, uh, and that that's a real problem. And and also bed bugs. I stayed in corporate housing one time, and I got bed bugs, and they don't bite the tough skin. It was horrible. So what what we're going after here? This is a, this is your market size. So we, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, the $1.5 billion the U.S. government spend on temporary furniture for their employees. And where do you get these numbers from? Uh, I just made them up. No, no. Like most entrepreneurs <laughs> no, do. No, so the the, the U.S. government, the, the furniture, that was based upon a lot of research, yeah. right? And I'm sure as we get better research, we'll get tighter mm -hmm. on what that what that is. But even if we, we look at in terms of like, if we look at the baby program, and we said the baby program, there's probably an average of $30,000. And then you say, well, let's say there's about 500 to 1,000 babies per year. That's one way of looking at it. And then there's also the Foreign Service Institute where the Department of State sends its folks. You say, well, the Foreign Service Institute has 4,000 students per year and their average contract, potential contract set would be about $40,000. So suddenly you're seeing big numbers just starting to sprout around without aggregating everything. And I imagine it's probably bigger, um, but that's, Kind of what we're guessing right now. It seems realistic. Okay. And then the 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 global furniture rental market, um, that's that's easy to find. So I know right now you're, you're focused on American military. You see, you stop doing like maybe like French military, oh, yeah. German military. Oh, yeah. Okay. In fact, we're already in communications with French military who wants to use us in Tampa, but there's a lot, right? So there's so many opportunities. We're kind of going with the ones that are easiest okay. to do. Next. All right. So yeah, that's there's some words in there. So the economic realities of furniture rental. Um, so the economic realities are like the furniture is the profitable. I mean, there's, I'm like giving away secrets here. So it's like something that I figured out that most people have not. 
for whatever reason. Um, look at the price of an unfurnished apartment. Look at the same price of a furnished apartment. The furniture is the expensive part. That brings it so high up. And that's because there's they're, de they're desperate, based on desperate markets, right? The, the unfurnished housing is based upon the housing market. Furnished housing is based upon the hotel market. There's a temporariness, so oh, wow. right? So there's okay. two different economies. Yeah, yeah. So per diem rate is based upon the hotel rate somewhere, and that's a temporary thing. The hotel, the the your unfurnished rate is based upon how much does it cost to build a house there, frankly. So you have this disparity in here, and that disparity is also fluctuates across the country, because furniture is still the same price across the country, but. Um, so so there, there, that's an economic reality. <clears throat> now, also, the cost of labor continues to rise. The cost of storage, inventorying, all of the rest of that continues to go up, whereas the cost of furniture itself continues to go down. So I use this, uh, I use the uh, comparison of like uh, the wooden spoon analogy. It's kind of weird, but you know, your wooden spoon, I throw it in the dishwasher. My parents would freak if I throw it in the dishwasher. They're like, oh no, you got to hand wash it. If you put it in the dishwasher, it's going to splinter and die. And I'm like, it costs like 25 cents. But in their generation, it costs a lot more. So there's a perspective on the value of furniture, which has evolved. Now, there's also an emotional perspective that goes along with there too. But basically, the cost of furniture keeps going down. The cost of storing, moving, shipping, and all the rest keeps going up. So... Inventorying is a bad idea. Okay. Or it's, uh, this one right here. <clears throat> uh, so this is the process, basically a process diagram. So what we are is we're in automation of the process. It's kind of fundamental to how I view startups. I do everything analog first. My first clients, I just kind of did it via paper, right? And then you build an Excel document that automates some stuff. And now we keep automating more and more. But this is the process that people go through when they're renting furniture. First, it's established as a work-related lodging expense, which is based on IRS regulations. There's a If a company is sending someone somewhere to do a job, it is a tax-free entitlement, right? So when, if, if company's sending you somewhere for a year, they can't buy you furniture because then they would own the furniture and they're not in the business of doing that. They can't give you money to buy furniture because if they do that, then that is considered taxable income. But they can pay to put you up in a hotel because it's a business-related expense. So first, there's an establishment of that as a work-related expense. You help figure out their location, the number of entitlements, and then they can either go into the contracted lodging, which is corporate lodging, or we enable them to pick any house, pick any furniture, and at the very end, we liquidate it for 25% of the retail price. Okay. And you usually have a pretty easy time liquidating it? Absolutely. So why did we pick 25%? So uh, my dad, the accountant, would say you depreciate furniture at 20%, right? And so we are liquidating at more than its value because of certain factors, right? I need it gone on a very specific day. I need it picked up site so you, you want to pay storage fees or inventory fees or- All of that just cranks it. up my price, right? And it's not worth it. So it's site unseen, needs to be picked up on that very same day, take it and go. So there, what we do is there's a, we have relationship with like local moving companies that they'll, they'll come pick it up and they'll, 
they'll just go drop it off at some furniture liquidator. So when like a furniture company delivers furniture to the place and they and the moving company takes it, is that something you control? Like those people work for you or just like partners or how that works? Right. So we found that uh, uh, through our supply chain analysis is like um, generally the movers are a third party. Even if they have the label, uh, if they deliver for a furniture warehouse, or so say you buy something off Amazon, you buy a, a couch off Amazon, there's the platform, there's the seller, and there's the deliverer. The deliverer never gets rated. And then if, like, if you say, oh, it took six months to get here, that delivery guy doesn't care, right? Then that's come from our moving experience. So what we do is we go direct to the mover. We de develop relationships with the movers themselves because we speak mover. Um, and, and that relationship means that we get our stuff exactly when we need it because okay. we, we have that in there. And then having that relationship, we just say, hey, Greg, we got all this furniture that somebody didn't want. And he's like, comes right up and grabs it. And, you know, he do whatever the heck he wants to do with it. Now, also, we donate furniture too, like a lot of stuff. Um, we, so we've found donation to be pretty awesome. It's something that we're, we're looking forward to doing more in the future, but developing the relationships with a donation center that can pick up when it needs to be picked up is more yeah, complicated yeah, than we thought imagine, it was yeah. gonna be, yeah. yeah. Okay, then how about this one right here? So th this is more just me talking, of, this is a visual depiction of the, the reimbursement methods, okay. which I, I think I've spoke ad nauseum yeah. about. Yeah. This is more about how there's the complexities of the, this is the sliding scale, right? Okay. Where it goes way down. Uh, and then this is our kind of our tech stack. And this is a video depiction of based upon the in inputs, you can deliver a contract that is that's variable, right? So court furniture can't do that. They've got a system that's they've been using for 20 years. And if you said to court, well, I want, I want to pay you $101 on this day uh, and I want to pay you 2,500 on the next day, they, they can't do that, right? And then this is basically our, our inventory system, which is, Google Sheets, so I have graduated away from Excel. Um, but well, this is an inventorying system, and what it allows is allows Brittany to have an interface where she can do purchasing and tracking of all of the furniture. Meanwhile, there's an interface for the customers to see, you know, where there's some deliberation back and forth about what they want to buy and where is it and when it will be received and what's the disposition of it and if there are any sort of complaints about it. So the, we've automated a lot of our processes just because I, that's how you that's how you scale and what we're building is we're taking basically taking all of the little tools that i've kind of made and cobbling it together in one spot right there's the contract there's the inventorying system the supply system there's the interface of like where am i going to live sort of those things so the, i'm sure you did with different furniture companies you can experience like you know like this furniture, their furniture like, is better built. This furniture lasts longer. Hundred percent. Okay. And then I'm. Then I'm guessing you tend to go to the companies that actually build good furniture. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. There's so, yeah. And there's the reliability of the shipper. There's the reliability of the product. There's the, um, yeah. And not just like is it a good product, but is it delivered what was promised? Mm -hmm. A lot of times you'll get something that's the wrong color. Mm -hmm. And Brittany, she orders hundreds of thousands of dollars of furniture. So she has these relationships with all these suppliers. So 
frankly, shit, like I'm gonna buy some furniture from my house. I'm gonna ask Brittany what to buy, <laughs> frankly, because you you have this perception as a consumer. You're like, I want that one, but you don't realize that that one is gonna come six months later. But yeah. this one, it'll show up tomorrow. So she knows all of those intricacies and can even from down to like, a, what's the best spatula to get, or what's the best. Uh, kitchenware or pots and pans and where to get it from. Do you think there'll be time in the future where furniture companies are like, you know, say, our furniture is highly recommended by TDY Rentals? Maybe. Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe one of them will buy us. Who, who knows? They're, they're gigantic. Uh, I could see that. And we actually, she, she has started making product review videos saying like, because she's an expert at it. So she knows this is the pots and pans to buy because they're reliable, they're dependable, and you know, she gets the feedback from all the customers. So she's aggregating all of this data from all of our people. So she knows deliverability, reliability. Have y'all noticed a difference between like dealing with like, we'll say a national brand furniture company versus maybe a locally owned furniture brand company? No, not really necessarily. So um, the advantage of nationally owned furniture companies means that the customer can go try out the furniture in their hometown before they go to their location. So that's an advantage. Like at Ashley, they can go to their local Ashley, look at, look and feel it uh, already. Um, the, the, you know, and, and there's a relative consistency with the national brand. You're dealing with the same people speaking the same language. Whereas when you have a local furnitures, um, a little more intricacies involved in it, right? But Target's the same everywhere and they've got the best, you know, spatulas. Where is the furniture actually made at? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, you know what? Frankly, I don't even, I haven't seen most of our furniture. Um, okay. I, I, I trust, like I said, you got to trust good people. Like yeah. Brittany knows, I do not. Okay. All right. So you already talked about your company some. Can you like, well, first of all, like the company TDR Rentals, of course, you know, is self-explanatory. Was any like why TDI Rentals? Why not some like fancy name or you know, no, you know, right? Like, why why it be so basic? Yeah, and we've probably got to like rebrand eventually <laughs> as we as we move into the corporate world. So the when you're picking a company name, you you I'm sure as you're aware, right? You have to you have a whole bunch of ideas, and then you have to see what URLs are available. Exactly, number one yeah. thing. Yeah, it's like you have the best name in the world. Yeah, someone has it, and they're not using it. They yeah. want ten million dollars for the URL. Squatting on your URL, right? So. You make a list of words and you make a list of URLs and you pick out of the ones that's available. Um, TDY Rentals is obvious to anybody in the government mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and that's our first customer. Everybody knows, except when you're in the Navy, they call it TAD. <laughs> Everybody knows what it means. TDY Rentals, got it. Quickly, they know what it means. Will it resonate in the corporate world? Who knows? Yeah. We'll see. Well, maybe, maybe we'll rebrand by that point. I mean, that's when you like, to Series B and you stop being in the Army Reserves sort of thing. I don't know. Yeah. So you always talk about your company, but can you like go more detail like how it got started? What you focus on now with your big term business for it moving forward? Okay. So, so complex question, right? So how it got started was I went on TDY. I went on TDY in Tampa and uh, I realized the opportunity. Is this where you had the bed bugs at? No, that's not where <laughs> I had the bed bugs at. No, no, actually, but yeah, that, no, that was not there. Uh, but I, yeah, that, that sucked. Um, no, the uh, I, I realized the opportunity when I was in Tampa. I, I saw my peers and I saw what they were getting for the amount that they were paying. 
And I was just, there's got to be a better way to do it. And I, I ruminated on it. I studied the economics behind it. I did like basically case study sort of thing. And I was like, well, there is a better way to do it. So that that's how it started, right? Um, and then you say, where where are we going? What was your other questions? Or like, what do you focus on right now? Right now, product market fit, right? So we have initial adopters. So we have a minimum viable product. We have initial adopters. We've got lots of customers, and all of our customers love it. But it there's a there's a there's an education period, right? You're trying to convince the first people to get in an Uber, mm-hmm. and there's a distrust. Yeah. The, I'm not giving this on brand new stranger. I don't know what this guy yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. But now it's ubiquitous, right? So the, that's where we're at is figuring out the best way to explain that to the to a customer in a quickly scalable way. Thankfully, uh, Steve Watkins is, is a fantastic at communicating complex things without all my legal jargon, right? That's our, our salespeople. That is really their mission. Their mission is to sell, but it's frankly, it's to figure out how to sell and how to scale the words and explain it in the right way. Because our website doesn't even do that. So we really need to figure out how do we get that in a way that everybody can quickly understand and how do we empower those initial adopters to tell their friends? Lots of we get lots of referrals because our customers love it, and they want it. They're like, "Dude, check this out!" And that is kind of how it works in the government. You remember, right? When you're in that group of people, you're like, "Dude, I don't want to do all the reading. What is Bill doing? You know, he's a smart guy. He's maybe not my boss, but he's he knows his stuff. So I'm just gonna buy whatever Bill buys, right? I'm guessing the future is like be the dominant player in the market. Yeah, it'll be the thing to do. There's like the thing that everybody does in the military. You all stay there. You all there's something you all do. We all do. And that'll be that'll be how it is. That's what we envision anyway, right? Is to have it be the easy button. Everybody knows. Oh, you're going on TDY. You get to go now. So now it's you get to go on TDY. Click this, click this button. Yeah, people, click this button. People fighting to go on TDY. Right. Yeah. Right. Because they have a better quality of life. Right. It's I I think really what we're, like a vision is so. Yes, we're a corporation, and obviously our, our first mission is to make money, right? Um, but really, we enable people that are going. When someone goes on TDY, they're doing something super important for the government. Like, so we're helping the government mission, which which is like altruism, right? Which is which may, which is really why we love doing it, because I love talking to all my customers about what they're doing and where they're going and why. Whether it be like. Air Force pilots or Navy folks or like even the, you know, the mothers that come back and they have their baby, you get to hear the story about their baby and their life and what they're doing over there and, and how we help them. And by helping them have a better life, we're helping the U.S. government. And eventually we're going to help every employee across the globe have that much better of a work-life balance. So obviously I don't think this would be a problem. What happens when like the army realizes or the military realizes, man, our, our people have a better sound of living going to Tito Reno instead they do have like on base housing and live in a base, right? Okay. Obviously, that's not your problem. For okay. I mean, yeah. so like, yeah, it's true. Well, that's good because TDY is they're doing something important, right? Especially if you're going for a year or six months, that is an important thing. I think they would be happy about it. They would be like, look, why is everybody loving to do these complex missions? Look at everybody's stepping up to do stuff that we had to 
you just have to force people to do. Do you see like yourself like maybe doing this like I don't know how you do it, but like, you can do it with, like maybe like base housing or dorms and stuff where you like supply furniture for them? Uh, that's a totally different game. Different game, okay. Yeah, totally okay. different game, right? That's that's yeah. And that's a that's a red ocean. We're in blue ocean. Okay. Right? Yeah. All right. So Steve, is there anything that I said I asked you that I didn't know anything else you want to talk about? Um no. I think you kinda you're very in depth. <laughs> I, I like it. No, I think we got everything. Um yeah, so on our on our horizon, uh, we're looking forward to perhaps competing in a lot of pitch competitions. So we've been intentionally kind of silent about that while we were developing, because uh, that fear of the room full of MBAs. Um, but we are looking forward to like this. This is our first kind of PR thing, right? So now we'll begin a PR campaign, and we'll kind of come out of hiding of sorts do more pitch competitions we're looking forward to like bunker pitch competitions there's usaa pitch competitions um we'll get we'll become more publicly aware uh, because also when you do that like you get feedback from people and you're like oh i guess i should explain it a little differently so that's on our horizon um and then over the next year we're just going to keep growing growing aggressively and learning lessons from every client and just get more of them, really. That's where we're going. And you said you're right now you're looking for a, 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 is a, is a marketing person, chief marketing, marketing manager? Yeah, so right now we're looking for a, a marketing person to to take the entrepreneurial risk with us, right? They, I can't have someone that's just thinking nebulous, thinking like, oh, I'm gonna discuss strategy and theory and stuff. I'm like, yeah, but you have to get behind the guns, dude. You like, like the, we were all in Tampa moving furniture. Right. Just but a few months ago. Right. And, and we got to have someone who's ready to get their hands dirty and knows how to operate, how to operate. They don't have to be the best at it, but they got to be willing to do it um, to really round out the team and, and and be able to see the vision, see the potential and jump in with both feet and and realize Hey, this this company could be worth a billion dollars. I mean, this 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 has the potential of being a, a a unicorn, right? Do you want to get in on a unicorn? Well, then do it and show show your chops and then make it happen. So that's what we're looking for. So suppose the market others watch this watch this video later on. Like, what do they need to do to get on your radar? Are they just send you an email. Are they like what? Would... Yeah, just send me an email. Okay, just send me an email. I'll I'll answer it. Just tell me, but don't try to pitch me on your marketing company. <laughs> I'm not going to go with your marketing company. Uh, you know, I, I've got someone, like I said, like once that I get an email or LinkedIn message from someone from Bangladesh, I saw your website. I can improve right. SEO. Like, dude, I'm not giving them from Bangladesh or Pakistan or yeah. India. Like, yeah. You know. what, and whatever. And I understand, you know, I kind of, I was in a marketing firm, right? I get that whole thing. I'm not looking for a marketing firm. I'm looking for a member of the team. team. Yeah. And can you share your social media so people reach out to you? Yeah, it's TDY Rental. No S. Someone had already squatted on the S. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. Facebook is TDY Rental, but if you put in TDY Rentals on Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn, it'll show up. I don't have TikTok yet, but I've got YouTube. So TDY Rentals, uh, this pretty much will find you. All right. Steve, can you give us any last minute wisdom or advice or anything you want to talk about? Last minute wisdom or advice? Man, I don't know. Um, I guess to all the other entrepreneurs out there, know what you're getting into. There's the red pill and the blue pill. And, uh, you know, take the right one because <laughs> it's chaotic. It's, it's up and down. It's rough. It's rough. Yeah. Steve, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, and to our listeners, thanks for your time as well. And remember to be great every day.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know?